We're going to jump into 2 Timothy chapter 3 today. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And, um, and this sermon is probably going to be a little more teachy than preachy. Uh, and and uh, we're going to study, really, uh, the Word of God. So we are going to open the Word of God. So to study the Word of God and be reminded of uh, what this is that we have before us. Now, uh, we have hardback black Bibles in the back. Uh-oh. We have hardback black Bibles in the back if you need one because they're not going to be on the screen. We just want you to open up your copy of God's Word and see it for yourself. Now, uh, the Apostle Paul here is writing to, um, to his, really his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy is a young man that Paul um, uh, swooped up and took him on his missionary journeys and kind of mentored Timothy. And then as uh, they planted a church, Timothy ended up becoming the pastor of that church. And now Paul is writing back to Timothy to give him some instructions and some encouragement about leadership, leading a church, eldership, some, some warnings against false uh, teachers and teaching. And so Paul is writing this probably from prison in Rome, feeling kind of abandoned because a lot of his good friends have left him. And you see that if you've read uh, these uh, letters this week, you'll see that he kind of calls out people by name saying, they abandoned me. And it's because whenever the going got tough, they got going. And, uh, and so whenever persecution arose... Uh, a lot of them abandoned Paul, and so he's writing uh, back to his uh, young, this young, gifted pastor, Timothy. And today, he gives us some of the best teaching on the Word of God, the nature of God's Word, the nature of the Bible that we have in all of Scripture. And so let's read it together. We're going to be in chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, and then we will pray. So are you there? Are you ready? All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for gathering us together. I thank you that already we were able to um, sing your praises and lift high your name, God. I thank you for the privilege of knowing you and being able to come together to uh, study your word and to draw near to you through your scripture. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us to see what you want us to see, uh, to understand your word, to take it to heart, to apply it to our lives, that we would see it and you as more glorious than we have ever before. Lord, I pray that you'd guide my speech and my words. Uh, that I'd only say what you want me to say, only what is true. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. And so, uh, earlier in the letter, and throughout the letters here, Paul is warning Timothy of uh, false teachers 
and false teaching um, and godliness that will uh, mark the end days. And he's saying, hey, watch out for these people and beware of these people because they will lead many astray. And then we see that um, not only are there false teachers, but then there are these believers who hunger and desire for this false teaching. We see this in chapter 4, verses uh, 3 and 4, if we want to look at that together for just a moment to, to set this up to kind of see the danger here. Chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in uh, to myths. So he says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. I would probably add to that, the time is coming and it is now here when people will not endure a sound a teaching. What is sound teaching? Well, sound teaching is teaching the text of Scripture, not using the text to teach my ideas. Okay, so it's not I go to the Bible and get some proof text to support the things that I want to say. It's finding out with diligent study what does the Bible actually say, what does it mean, and I'm going to teach that. The Bible sets the agenda, I do not. So this is sound teaching. That's why we believe in verse by verse. Oftentimes through books of the Bible, we're getting right back into a book of the Bible at the beginning of the year because we believe this is the best diet, the healthiest diet for a local church just to get sound teaching. But it's also teaching the whole counsel of God. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, he says that I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So it's it's, um, I'm going to teach you the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not going to skip over things or gloss over anything. I'm going to give it all to you because it's all good and all profitable. But he says the time is coming when people will not endure this sound teaching. Not endure. And I just have to ask you, like, is sound biblical teaching feel like endurance for you? Like as you're listening to good Bible teaching, you're like, man, this is boring. Like, like, spice it up a bit. Tell me a story. Like, is it boring? Is it endurance to you? Or do you love it, hunger for it? Is it? It's not interesting. Tell me something interesting. This is old stuff. Give me something new. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. And if it's new, it ain't true oftentimes, right? Because we have an ancient um, book here, an ancient faith. But he says they will uh, not endure sound teaching, he goes on to say, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So they have itching ears, you know, I've got an itch, and the only thing that will scratch it is someone to tell me what I want to hear. Itching, they'll accumulate teachers for themselves, only listening to people who tell them what they want to hear, but he says to suit their own passions. That's what it's about. It, it's about... I want somebody, I want to listen to a preacher or a Bible teacher who will uh, not only tell me that my sin is not sin, but then they will even go a step further in making me feel good about my sin. That it's not only not bad, but that it's actually okay. That it's good. And uh, that's the people we want. This manifests itself in 
people like Brandon Robertson, who is a young homosexual so-called pastor who uh, teaches not only that homosexuality is not a sin, but that it in fact is holy in the sight of God. And you're like, oh my goodness, how could he say such things when the Bible so clearly prohibits such behavior? Well, you know how he does it? He says, oh, those writings in the New Testament that forbid it, I don't think that's inspired by God. Well, I guess that's an easy way to get around it. If you just say it's not God's word, I don't have to obey it, and I guess you're the judge on what is actually inspired and what is not. But people follow this guy in droves, especially online, on the internet. Like, watch out what your kids are listening to. He's very popular on TikTok. Okay? Why are you naming names, Pastor? Well, Paul did it. I'm sorry. Like, there's some people you need to be warned about. And you're like, well, that's not something I deal with, I struggle with. Well, maybe uh, it also manifests itself as preachers like Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis and Joel Osteen and others who not only say that greed is not bad, but it's actually God's will for you. That God wants you to be wealthy, whatever the cost. It's not that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's not it. It's that... Is that You should get in this Christian life everything that your heart desires. And you know how you get it? Just give to my ministry. Just sow a seed, and the Lord will bless you. Okay, so these teachers manifest themselves in many different ways, and people love them. They accumulate for themselves, these teachers. This is how I, I subscribe to these channels. I listen to these podcasts. I go to these churches. How can they be wrong when their churches are so big? Isn't God blessing it? Yeah, he's going to lead many astray. So they will turn away. So they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. So then they turn away from the truth, which means that then they brand sound Bible teachers as legalists. You're a legalist or a bigot or intolerant or hateful because you teach what the Bible says as clearly as it says it. So they'll turn away from truth and wander off into myths. Now this is the natural result of turning away from truth. Whenever you abandon truth, all you're left with is myths and falsehood. And so this manifests itself as you spend more time researching the things that could be than the things that are. You're more interested in the secrets of of the Bible. Let me tell you these secrets that I found out. All these secrets, no one has ever known these things, but look, I I connected the dots and it was this secret thing hidden for all ages, but I figured it out. So you're more interested in secrets than you are what is sound. And he's like, be careful. You're wandering off into myths, things that are not verifiable, unless you're the myth busters. They are not verifiable. You can't know them. And uh, it's going to lead you into all types of issues. So, in the end times, people 
will reject sound teaching. But what are they rejecting exactly? We see two things about the Scriptures in the passage today. And the first one is this, that all Scripture is inspired, uh, is the inspired Word of God. All Scripture is the inspired Word of God. Let's go back to verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. All Scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, emphasis on all. Paul referred to the Scriptures both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's, it's fairly easy because in the Old Testament, over 3,000 times are there statements of authority, statements like, uh, the word of the Lord came to me and said, or thus says the Lord, over 3,000 times. But then in the New Testament, there are direct quotations of the Old Testament over 300 times. So 300 times in the New Testament do they directly quote the Old Testament as authoritative word of God, and there's over a thousand inferences or references to Old Testament Scripture. So the Old Testament is uh, clearly would have been understood as the Word of God. As he's writing to Timothy, and he talks to him about uh, the inspiration of the Scriptures, the only Scriptures that Timothy has at the time is the Old Testament. Now, some of these New Testament letters are beginning to circulate, but for the most part, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. So it is... Um, pretty uh, confirmed at this time the authority of the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Because some people would even, um, would even give it to you. Yes, the Old Testament is the Word of God, but not the, New not the New Testament or not all of the New Testament. And so how do we know that the New Testament is God's Word? Just like I said, Brandon Robertson is like, hey, I don't think that's, from, I don't think that's the inspired Word of God. And how do we know that he also is including in this statement these other things in the New Testament? Because we have this idea that the canonization of the Scriptures did not come into being until hundreds of years after the life of Jesus. Um, and then a group of men decided these are the, these are the books that we're going to say are true. But that's really not how it happened. The way that we got the Bible we have today is because um, from very early on in the church, they accepted certain writings from the apostles as equal to the Scripture. And we see this because the apostle Paul quotes um, Luke and says that it's Scripture. In 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18, he says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, and so now he's going to quote Scripture. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now here's the thing about those quotes is the first one, that you shall not muzzle an ox as it uh, treads out the grain, is a quote from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, 4. But the second quote that he says is Scripture, the laborer deserves his wages, is not a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. 
where Jesus is teaching. And so he quotes the writings of Luke and says, this is scripture. But Paul's not the only one to do this. Peter does the same thing. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, Peter quotes Paul as being scripture. And he says this, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I'm glad he wrote it because that's been my experience with Paul. Especially as you read Romans, you're like, eh, this is hard to understand. And Peter's like, it is hard to understand. He says, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And so he's saying the writings of Paul are scripture. And so there's good evidence that even in the early church, and even in the New Testament church, they had already begun to consider the writings of the apostles that we have in our New Testament as scripture, as the word of God. All scripture is God breathed. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the 66 books written uh, by over 40 authors over a period of 1,600 plus years on three continents, all telling this unified story of God's creation and the fall of man and the story of redemption and recreation in the end. It's all telling the story of one person, the person of Jesus Christ, his first coming at Christmas, and his second coming that we all long for and look for. And so all scripture is God-breathed. And God-breathed means inspired. So all scripture is inspired. The word inspiration is theopneustos. It's where theo is God, uh, neustos, where we get uh, maybe our word like pneumonia. And so it literally means, like the ESV translation is like a literal translation. It literally means God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Scripture is the direct result of the breathing out of God through man. It is the Word, the breath of God on the pages. And, um, but there's some... When you say that the Scripture is the inspired Word of God, it leaves room for some misinterpretation because we all have an idea of what inspiration means. And so we, um, it's not meaning natural inspiration. It's not meaning the type of inspiration where you like uh, see a sunset and you're inspired to write a poem or something. It's not like you, 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 whenever you listen to a, a beautiful um, orchestra or something, and you, and you leave saying, man, that was inspiring. It's not saying you read a, a leadership book and it inspired you to start a business. It's not like natural inspiration. He's not saying the, 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 the apostles, they just looked at the goodness of God and said, I'm inspired to write some things about God. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying it's concept inspiration. He's not saying God gave them the ideas and left it to them to come up with the words. 
So it's not like God's like, hey, Paul, if you could write something maybe about love, that would be good. And so Paul's like, okay, let me sit down, and he starts writing out 1 Corinthians 13. It's not like God just said, hey, could you, could you write something about this? And they just ran with it. Yeah, I got it, God, I'll, you know, I'll take that. It's not concept inspiration that the actual words of God are inspired. That's why, like in Jeremiah, when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he didn't say, I'll put ideas in your mind. He says, I'll put my words in your mouth. It's the words. And then it, but then also, it's not mechanical inspiration in the sense of that God is, is like dictating um, directly bypassing their humanity and going straight to it like you would dictate to a secretary or something. It's not mechanical inspiration. It's something unique and supernatural. Inspiration, biblical inspiration, means that God did use the different styles of people's personality and backgrounds to express His truth that God the Holy Spirit moved in these men to communicate his very words. We're actually given an explanation for how this works in uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 19 through 21. As he writes and says, uh, We have a more prophetic word. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But God spoke from, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this language here, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is the idea of a sailboat, as you would set sail, and I'm not going to say anything about a rudder, okay? But you set sail, you set up the sails, and the wind of the Holy Spirit blows it on, okay? So he's saying the uh, authors of the Scripture, the human authors, are like the boat and the sail, that they're being obedient to God and they have their own personalities, but the wind of the Holy Spirit led them to the correct destination. I, I think about it like different pens. You have different pens have different purposes. Different pens have different styles and colors and weights. You use a different pen for signing documents than you would for drawing calligraphy. There, there, there's different pens, different writing utensils, different styles, but then the author or the artist is the one uh, determining the final destination of what happens. And so God, too, uses the instrument of human authors with all their different backgrounds and personalities and literary styles to communicate exactly what he intended for them to communicate. That's why whenever you listen to, uh, like you read the Gospel of Luke, he was a physician, so you can expect medical terminology in his Gospel. Very exact, very precise. Matthew was a Levite, and so you can expect him to be rich in the history of the Jewish faith, and he is. Paul is a rabbi, and he's highly educated, and so he's quoting uh, religious and non-religious thoughts. He's bringing all these things together. God used him, and you can see 
personality. And Peter, he's like, boom, 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 boom. He's like, no nonsense, just get it out. And so you can see somehow that God used the personalities and the styles of each human author, but to communicate exactly the words that he wanted to say. And so we as Christians, or evangelical Christians, believe in the verbal, plenary uh, inspiration of Scripture. So verbal, we believe that the words are inspired. Plenary means absolutely all of it is inspired and uh, the words not in addition to the moral concepts and teachings. So it's not just the concepts, not just the principles, but the exact words, and all of them are. We also believe that the Bible is inerrant. It's without error. It's infallible. It's trustworthy and reliable, never failing, always effective, capable, incapable of error. It's infallible and inerrant, in the original autographs or the original manuscripts, of which we today have um, extraordinarily uh, accurate and reliable copies of what was originally written. Okay? So the content of the inspired word is revelation, revealing to us who God is and, and what he does and um, the content is revelation. The process, the journey to which we get the scriptures is inspiration. But every word of the Bible is inspired. Every word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an ida or a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. He's like, not a comma or a period, not a stroke of the scripture will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So it's inspired. But you might say, but, but look, Justice, the, you're saying it's inspired based on a quote from the book. And so can't anybody who's writing a book just say it's inspired? Like, I'm writing, and this is inspired by God. God gave me these words. This is the, can't anyone do that? And some have. And I would say, yeah, you're exactly right. You could write a book, actually, why don't some of the greatest minds alive today determine in themselves to write a better book than the Bible, say it's inspired by God, say it's the Word of God, and see how it um, stands the test of time. I think we, we must come to the Scripture and say there ha there's something to the impact that the Bible has had on human history. Uh, the Guinness Book of World Records says that the Bible holds the record for the most books sold and distributed in human history. The Bible is the world's best-selling and most widely distributed book with over 5 billion copies in print since the 1800s alone. Wow. It has been translated into... Uh, 1,442 languages and portions of, portions of the Scripture into another 1,145 languages, totaling 2,587 languages in all. In the United States, um, 
according to the American Bible Society, uh, nearly nine out of ten homes have Bibles in them. Eighty-seven uh, percent, nearly nine out of ten Bibles, uh, homes have Bibles in them. On average, those homes have three Bibles. And so the Bible is uh, the most popular book, whether or not you would argue that people read it or not. They still value it enough, feel it's important enough to have three copies of it in their home. What can compare to the Bible? Can anything stand up against the Bible? Is there, there is no book like it in uh, continuity and consistency. You know, we talked about how it's 66 books, over 40 authors, three continents, over 1,600 years, consistently telling the same story. How do you accomplish that if not through supernatural means? It's unified. There's no book like it in honesty. There is no book like it in circulation. There is no book like it in its survival. The amount of manuscripts we have for the Scriptures far surpasses by the thousands that for any other ancient book in existence. And there's no book like it in the influence and its life-changing power. Have more lives been changed by any other book than this book? Lives have been transformed, empowered. There's no equal to the Bible, and there never will be. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. If it is God-breathed, then, if it is inspired word of God, then it is our supreme authority. If this is God's word, we would do well to pay attention to it, And that's why one of the major marks of the uh, Protestant Reformation is what is called sola scriptura, which means the scripture alone. And one of the marks of the Reformation was um, the scripture alone is our authority, not the church, not the pope, not tradition, the scripture alone. And therefore, uh, people, Christians, need to have copies of the scripture so that they can know for themselves what God says to them. It is our supreme authority. But here's one of the objections to sola scriptura. Some would object and say, here, you can't prove sola scriptura by sola scriptura. You can't prove that the scripture alone is our authority by the scripture alone. And my response to that claim is this verse. That all scripture is... God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. One reason we believe that the scripture alone is our ultimate authority is because it is the only form of revelation that is God breathed. The words of modern prophets are not God breathed. The words of the church fathers are not God-breathed. The words of tradition are not God-breathed. The words of the Pope are not 
God breathed. Only the holy scriptures are God breathed and therefore have a unique authority in the lives of believers that no other source of revelation has. Why is it the scripture alone that is our authority? Because it's the only revelation that is God breathed, that has the breath of God on it. As we read earlier in 2 Peter 1.19, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to. And if it is the word of God, the inspired word of God, we would do well to pay attention to what it says and to allow it to be the authority in our life. And that leads us right into that all scripture then is profitable. All scripture is profitable. It's it's. It's helpful. It's useful. Uh, Back to verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's profitable for teaching. Teaching is, um, is kind of this overarching general term. Uh, to teach doctrine, sound doctrine, what is right belief about God and His Word. But then he, underneath that, gives us three more specific aspects of this teaching. So as the Word of God is taught, maybe from a class or the stage or your pastor or in personal study, as the Word of God is taught, it is good for reproof. Reproof is the idea that the Bible confronts us, that it convicts us, that when the Bible says, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, that when I disagree with the Bible, the Bible wins. Whenever I read the Bible through my, you know, I'm sensitive, modern sensibilities, and say it can't mean that, it means that. We don't apologize for the Bible. It's widely misunderstood and takes personal, careful, um, thorough study to understand, but it brings reproof. It convicts us of sin. Initially, as we come to the Scriptures, it convicts us of our sin and turns us to Christ. That's what he says to Timothy in verse 15. He says, um, he talks about these sacred writings and how from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he says one of the things that the Scripture, the sacred writings, does in the life of a person is that it makes us wise for salvation. It helps us see the Gospel and understand it and receive it by faith. It makes us wise for salvation. And so you can be wise in many areas of the world. You might be highly studied and well-educated and you have, uh, you have precision in what you know and you are an expert in your field. You can be wise about a lot of stuff, but if you're not wise until salvation, it's all a waste. It'll all burn up in the end. And the wisdom that we truly need is wisdom unto salvation. It has faith-inducing power. There's this uh, story of 
Charles Spurgeon is this British preacher in the 1800s. He started really young, and, um, and his church grew really rapidly. 19 years old, thousands of people coming to hear him preach. And so he gets invited to preach at the special event at this huge um, venue, the, uh, the Crystal Palace. And uh, he's never been there before, never preached there before. So the day before the event, he shows up to test the acoustics. So this is before amplification. So he wanted to see, you know, where do I stand? Where's the best place for me to get, you know, reach the the whole audience? And so he comes uh, to the place for a sound check. No one's there that he's aware of. And he begins to proclaim, to, to kind of test the acoustics, to do a sound check. And he does this sound check by declaring with a loud voice, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And so as he's, you know, maybe I'll stand here. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I don't know, maybe this would be better. Behold the Lamb of God. So he's just sound checking. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Unbeknownst to him, there's a worker somewhere in the building. That as he hears the word of God proclaimed in this way, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, like a voice from heaven, strikes him to the heart, comes under the conviction of the Spirit, and gives his life to the Lord. And then the next day, over 23,000 people fill this arena to hear this young preacher preach. And the word of God has power not just to reach the masses, but to reach the one and to bring salvation to him. William Barclay, in his commentary, tells this story of um, a man in Brazil, Senor Antonio of Mines, who he bought a New Testament um, just so he could burn it. I guess he needed some kindling. So he got home, and uh, the fire at home had been, uh, it went out, and so he's trying to get it started again. As he's starting this fire, he throws the Bible on it to burn, but it's not burning like he wants it. So then he takes it out, he opens it up, and it falls open in the New Testament to the Sermon on the Mount, and he throws it back down after receiving a glance of the words on the page. He was so intrigued by the words he saw on the page that he pulled it right back out of the fire and uh, began to read it. And he says that his attention was caught. He took it back. He read on, forgetful of time, through the hours of the night. And just as dawn was breaking, he stood up and declared, I believe! I believe. The word of God is profitable to reprove us, to turn us from our ways, to convict us of our sin, to give us faith to believe in him. It's profitable for for reproof and for correction. For correction. So then he, he confronts you and then turns you and realigns you with what is right. But here's the thing. If every time you read the Bible, you're encouraged, something's wrong. If every time you read the Bible, you're like, oh, yeah, praise the Lord, awesome, something's wrong. Because the Bible is not just meant to encourage, it's meant to confront and to correct 
But then also, in the, conversely, if every time you read the Bible, you feel corrected. You're like, oh, God, I'm such a sinner. I'm worth nothing. Like, if every time you're corrected, something's wrong. Because the, the Bible is also meant to encourage you and to comfort you and to strengthen you. The Bible has the effect of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfort, comfortable. So we have to get both of it out of it. We have to come to it, let it reprove us, let it correct us, sometimes encourage us. That's what he says, training in righteousness. So it's profitable for reproof, profitable for correction, profitable for training in righteousness. It's the right way to live. The Bible contains everything you need to live the life God desires for you to live. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The Bible contains everything. It's not going to answer every question you ever have in life, but it's going to provide everything you need to live the Christian life that God desires for you to live. If you've ever played baseball and you um, had your coach uh, train you, I mean, he, he trains you how to come up, stand at the plate, how to hold the bat, how, how to kind of bend your knees and, 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 you know, change your stance and how to swing and where to put your elbows. And he is, he is training you in the right way to play sports and the nuance of how exactly to play the game. And in the same way that a, a coach might train you in the nuance of right playing of a sport, God uh, trains us through his word in the right way to live. The Bible trains us. And what is uh, the result of this? That um, he says that we are... The man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Complete, that's God's goal for you. Complete, perfection, maturity, growth. The word of God matures us, completes us, grows us. If a pastor preaches this book, the people will grow. If you give yourself to studying this book, you will grow. It changes you. It matures you. Complete means that the Bible leads me into everything I need. If I will be both a hearer and a doer of the word, I will be complete as a Christian, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I love that he says that, that the, the consumption of this book will equip you for every good work. That Bible study and service are not opposed to one another, they complement one another, that one fuels the other. That the more I know of God, the more I would want to live and serve as God would desire me to live and serve. So some people are thinkers. Some people are thinkers. They loved the books. They love sitting alone and reading and studying and highlighting and journaling. Some people are thinkers. And then you have other people who are doers. They think of that and they're like, that's miserable. I've got to be doing something. Give me something to do. I can lift something. Help me. And here's the thing. Um, we're called to do both. We're called to do both. Maybe you're a doer and you need to grow in your understanding of the word of God and give yourself a little bit more diligently to his word and study. 
And maybe you're a studier, you're a thinker, and you need to give yourself a little bit more to every good work that God has purposed for us to do and get out of the library and get into the community and begin to do every good work. We're called to do both. So it's profitable. So now what do we do? Well, the final encouragement here, how do we guard ourselves against this warning uh, where he says, hey, be careful of the false teachers and be careful of being someone who's itching for only people to tell them uh, what they want to hear. So what do we do? Well, look at verse uh, 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, continue. Or the way we have it put for this point, remain in uh, the Scriptures. Remain in the Scriptures. I'm going to ask the praise team, if they would, to join me on stage to close us out as we reflect on what it means to remain in the scriptures. He says, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Continue. This is the same. It's, in the Greek, it's a meno. It means um, to abide or to remain. It's the idea of live in this thing. 1 John 2, 24 says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and of the Father. So never let them go. Abide in them. Remain in them. Jesus says, if, uh, if I abide in you and your, if, if your words, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If we allow the words of God to abide in us, and if we abide in the word of God, we live there, we remain there, we don't let it go, we stay in the scriptures, that's what guards us against error. How will a young man keep his way pure, Psalm 119 says? By guarding it according to your word. And so we remain in the scripture. So he's like, how do you not be deceived by all the false teachers? How are you not led astray to only desiring those people to tell you what they want to hear, to being caught up in the myths that are so interesting and alluring? How do you, how do you guard against that? Stay in the Scriptures. Stay in the Scriptures. Live there. Immerse yourself in them. And he says, continue in the things that you have learned and have full, firmly believed. Something, so, so the thing is that since this is, is a book written by God, it is a spiritual book. It's a spiritual book. And it takes us come to, coming to it with uh, a spiritual heart. It takes faith to receive the teachings of the scriptures. You know, when Jesus taught, he ended a lot of times, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying is if you have the spiritual understanding to receive by faith, what I'm saying, you're going to understand it. And many people read this book and they don't get it. They don't get it. They're like, I don't see it. And it's because you do have to come to it by faith, firmly believing it. As much evidence as we have proving the, the uniqueness of this book, I can't really prove to you that it's God's word. You have to receive that by faith. 
believe it by faith. And then he says, he says here, the things that you have, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with these sacred writings. Earlier in these letters, he talks about how his mother, uh, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice, have brought him up in the ways of God. His mother was Jewish, his dad was Greek, but Jewish uh, children were brought up in the scriptures from the age of five. They were taught the law from the age of five. And they were taught to memorize it and to love it. And so he's like, you were, you've been acquainted with these sacred writings from childhood. And I would just say, hey, if you firmly believe these things, teach them to your children. Read the scriptures to your children. I was so blessed last night, not that we're doing anything great. We're bumbling around as parents, I'll tell you. But last night as we're putting our twin boys, they're almost three years old next month, um, putting them to bed, and we're like, okay, get in bed. And one of them says, Bible, Bible. And it's like, okay, so we read, read our Bible before we go to bed. And I just thought, man, that, that's so ingrained in his habit like, what are you doing putting me to bed without our Bible? You lost your mind, you heathen? <laughs> Teach them to your children. Get your children in church. Raise them up in the things of God. Read the scriptures. Firmly believe them. Ultimately, it's not how much we know about this book, but how well we know the author of this book. It's about knowing Christ the reason why we, we treasure the scriptures is because it reveals to us the one in whom we treasure, which is Christ. It is his word to us, and we should give ourselves to it so that we can know the God of it and be drawn to him through it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for... Uh, time in your holy word this morning. God, I pray that, um, that God, we'd see the beauty of this revelation that you have provided for us directly from you, God, breathed out to us. And Lord, I pray that we would not take it for granted, that we would not neglect it, but that we would give ourselves to it to know it, to love it, to study it, but ultimately to be drawn to you by faith through it. God, I pray that even as your word has been proclaimed this morning, that you would give faith to people to believe in the God of the Bible. That this book would lead us to worship you, to surrender to you, to love you, to treasure you. So Lord, help us trust you today by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.